How are we doing this morning? Good. It's great to see you. I saw that thumbs up. I like that. Good deal. Hey, uh, my name is Jaron. For those of you that do not know me, uh, I am one of the pastors here at Emmaus, and uh, man, I'm just so privileged to be able to be here to uh, share with you God's word. Owen obviously is on away on a well-deserved break, so we're thankful for that he's getting to, to rest today and be with his family. And so this morning, uh, we're going to be in Romans 12 here in a second. Um, I don't watch a ton of TV. I watch a little bit. I'm, I'm more of a sports guy. Uh, but one of the most intriguing shows for me that, that my eyes have been able to behold is something called The Shark Tank. I don't know if you've seen this show. It's been running for several seasons now. If you're not aware, the idea is you create, you invent something, and you bring it to this team of wealthy, successful business individuals, present them your case, show them what uh, you have for the world in hopes of gaining from this team of people their money, their advice to help you make a a successful living of giving this product uh, to the world. One of the most successful products on the Shark Tank, believe it or not, is something called the Squatty Potty. If you're not aware of what that is, Google that afterwards. You don't need to waste your time doing that now. But it is one of the most successful products. In 24 hours after that episode aired, uh, Squatty Potty saw $1 million in sales in just 24 hours. And best I can tell, since its inception, uh, $175 million in sales from this one product. Pretty pretty remarkable. What I find intriguing uh, about the show is that regardless of how promising a a product uh, presents itself to be, uh, the individuals making the appeal to the team of sharks are convinced of its usefulness, of its effectiveness, um, its value, and its worth to the world. And sometimes it's not necessarily about how convincing a product is. Sometimes it's about how convincing the person making their appeal that gains them the money, gains them the advice, and winning over the sharks. As we think about that idea of making an appeal, this morning, what we're going to see in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul makes an appeal to Romans and also to us as we read it. Um, And I can assure you it's, it's not the slick presentation of Paul that adds value, that adds worth to the content of what he is going to be appealing to us this morning. The, the value and the content stands on its own in regards to its importance for us this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, or your phones, uh, it'll be on the screen. You can look with me here. If you're online, uh, you can check it on the TV here on Romans 12. Let's read verses one and two together. It says this, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And so as we consider and think about what is happening here, Paul is making a very pivotal appeal to the Romans, to us, to remember God's mercy. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God. So Paul's appeal, it's coming at a really important point in his letter to the Romans. For the first 11 chapters, Paul has spent a great amount of time explaining the gospel, explaining that, that Jesus alone brings salvation to all who believe. And so Paul has been putting a spotlight on the mercy of God He's been highlighting that by uh, looking at the sinfulness of man, but also putting a highlight on the love of God for sinners to rescue them. And, and what is so amazing as we think about this rescue and what we've been singing about this morning, this rescue was not in response to man's sorrow and regret over sin. His rescue came while we were running from him, not to him. Scripture says in Romans 3, starting in verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But, in Romans 5, as we've also read this morning, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his love, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God wasn't waiting on his beloved creation to turn back to him, to get their act together. God moved first. He chased after his rebellious child. And this morning, I don't know at home or here in this room what, is, what has got your mind this morning and your heart or that you feel you're so far away from God and you can never get back to him. Can I just assure you and, and, and remind you that God has already acted on your behalf. There's nothing you need to do but come to him in faith, trusting that he alone can rescue you from the sin that has a hold of your life now. This is good news. He moved first. There was no, there was no, um, uh, it was the first thing that he, that he did for us and, and, and in spite of our sin and what we had been wrestling with, he came after us first. And, and so now at this point in the text that we see in Romans 12, Paul pivots and he starts the, to ask the question, so what? Not, not so what in who cares, but, but so what as in like what now? What do we do now in light of God's mercies? But before we break down the content of Paul's appeal into some specifics, I think it would be really important for us this morning to consider the act of the appeal itself, which is a good follow-up from Owen's message last week as we talked about relationships. To appeal, as Paul uses the word here in Romans 12.1, Paul is making a serious, he's making a very urgent plea. He's pleading, he's begging for the Romans to fully embrace his encouragement. And, and this idea of making an appeal is not just something that's reserved for Paul. It's not just reserved for leaders in the church. To make an appeal to others is, is a practice, an important practice for you and for I to embrace as being a part of the local church, of being a member of the church, part of the expectation for you as a member of Emmaus, being a part of this local church is having the eager responsibility to make these kinds of intentional, gentle appeals to one another, and yet at the same time, to willingly embrace humility in order to receive the appeals from others. 
the church, we collectively together proclaim and display Jesus to our neighbors and to the nations. We are praying together that God would open the eyes of the lost, that they might also see his mercy. But equally so, the church is a means for you and for I to endure, to keep going, to keep believing, to keep obeying. Two things are true for us, even as believers. We wrestle with sin, and we are forgetful. As we've talked about this before, Owen has mentioned that we live in the already but not yet time frame. We have been redeemed, and yet we still wait for our complete redemption. We have already been saved, and yet we await our final salvation. And it's in this time frame that we can identify with the writer of the hymn of the song we sang this morning, Come Thou Fount, when he said, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We can identify with that. We feel the tension in our hearts. And as we wait Christ for Christ's return to completely fulfill his promises, we need to humble ourselves to hear the gracious appeals of our brothers and sisters calling us back from the world and back to the truth of the gospel. We need to hear the appeals of our brothers and sisters proclaiming to us truths like 1 John 2 or 1 John 3 2 through 3 where it says, "Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him." Because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We need to both give and hear these kinds of appeals to one another. On my own, I will shipwreck my faith. Believe me, I have tried. I will forget the wonders of what Christ has done, or at worst, I will move on from them, thinking now that it's solely up to me to, to hopefully get myself together and live the victorious Christian life. This is foolishness. I need you to keep making the appeal to me that God is merciful and that his grace is greater than my sin. I need you to keep appealing to me that the treasures of this world are fleeting and that complete surrender to the kingdom of God is worth it. I welcome this. I want it, and I need it from you, and you need it from others as well. But why is Paul so caught up on the mercies of God? Well, two, we remember God's mercy to us so that we will properly express our thanks or our worship to him. He says there in verse 1, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Every day is a gift of God for us to recall his goodness to us in Jesus and in return to say thank you to him, not just merely with words, but with our lives. As we think about this word sacrifice, it's, it's language that's rooted in Old Testament worship, and it goes back to the very first man, Adam and his family. They came with their produce, they came with their livestock, and they offered a sacrifice on the altar as a way to acknowledge God's rightful authority in their life, but also to, to acknowledge his goodness to them. And the only difference now is that you and I, we are the sacrifice and a living one at that. R.C. Sproul calls it the throwaway life. When we offer our lives to Jesus in view of God's mercy and follow him, we are quite literally surrendering everything to him. 
we have open hands before him and we say, Jesus, I am yours. Now, to the world, this just doesn't make any sense. It's, it's insane, it's wasteful, it's, quote, throwing away your life. What they have and what they see is all that there is. Get all you can, experience all you can before the ride is over. But here's, here's the reality. This too was us. This too was us. Before God intervened and invaded our lives with his mercy. And so because God gave everything to rescue us, now we get to forsake all for him as a living sacrifice. And let's be honest. Additionally, when we hear that word sacrifice, we don't often equate that word with something pleasant. We equate it with something difficult. I was reminded of, of Abraham in Genesis 22. When he was asked to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, who was a gift from God, a promise fulfilled to Isaac. Let's, let's read together in, in Genesis 22, verses 6 through 8. It says this, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire, the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. You can just feel the tension, putting yourself in the story here of Abraham. You feel the tension of letting go of something of such great worth and great value. It goes on to say in verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son for me. Again, can you imagine the difficulty of that moment for Abraham? And, and what, what allowed him to endure such level of sacrifice? What, what enabled him to do that? Was he trying to earn something from God? Was he trying to appease God? Absolutely not. This sacrifice was done in response to who he already knew God to be. He was in awe of God. He said in verse 12 that the angel said that he feared God. He loved God. He trusted him. This sacrifice was an act of, of worship. It was an expression of what his heart already believed about God. R.C. Spohl goes on to reiterate. He says, we think of sacrifice as the giving away of something of extreme value, such as Isaac was for Abraham. In some sense, this is true, but the primary point is not that we should lose something, but that we should express something. You see, the deeper we are entrenched in the mercies of God, the more our hearts long to express to God his worth, and the more we willingly lay our lives down as an act of worship for his generosity to us. It doesn't remove the difficulty. It doesn't make it less painful. But through it, 
we keep singing more than any comfort. Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. We keep singing. We keep reminding ourselves of the truth that as we lay down our lives, that our greatest loss is our greatest gain when we know Jesus. He is better. And as we round out verse 1 here in chapter 12 of Romans, we see the words spiritual worship. Um, this, this phrase is most readily translated as reasonable service or logical worship. And so if we understand the mercies of God to us in the person of Jesus, it is a rational response to surrender completely all that we have to him. And on the flip side, it is completely irrational for us to be indifferent, to be apathetic, or even merely religious. For example, if, if we're not careful to daily, moment by moment, remember the mercies of God for us in Jesus, we will only grow in our religion. We will not grow in our worship of him. Being a living sacrifice will be nothing more for us than checking off spiritual boxes, trying to gauge if we've done enough for God, done enough to make ourselves feel a little bit better about where we are with him and what we've done. And so we have to ask ourselves an important question. Does the direction of our lives look more like how much do I have to give to God versus Jesus, you gave your all for me, so have all that I am. And so let's, let's keep unpacking this idea of being a, a living sacrifice because as we read on, starting in verse 2, a living sacrifice resists the patterns of this world. It says, do not be conformed to this word. Let's, let's hang out with that, ver that word conform. Um, it simply means to be similar to, um, to take on the same shape, take on the same likeness. Um, think about what's the most, one of the most conforming matters uh, known to man. I think of, of water. On its own, it, it has no boundaries, it, it knows no limits, it runs and spills with no regard to life, opinion, or desire. And yet at the same time, within its proper setting, it will perfectly conform to the shape and the likeness of its container. Now, the hard question is, does this illustrate our lives? Are we fluid in our standards or our values? Does our actions, our attitudes, or our words change and evolve depending on the setting or the people that we find ourselves around? He says, do not be conformed to this world. This, this is hard. This is the temptation that we find ourselves facing moment by moment. But that's why we keep looking to the mercies of God. Keep looking to the mercies of God. It says in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the, of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What are we hitching our wagons to? Things of eternal weight and value are things that are passing away. Um, a couple weeks ago, we got to uh, observe and watch what they called Hail Murray, which was 
you know, a funny way of calling a Hail Mary, Hail Mary in football. Kyler Murray, a former uh, QB for OU, he threw a last-second touchdown from the 50-yard line um, to beat the Buffalo Bills. Um, I didn't get to see it live. My brother had recorded it, and so later that night, um, I got to take it in, and I, instead of just watching that last play, I backed it up and watched like the last few minutes of the game. And what's forgotten in that game is the Buffalo Bills had their moment of last-second victories as well. They themselves, with 30 seconds left, scored a touchdown, supposedly, to, to win the game. And it was an incredible thing to behold as I'm watching the Bills celebrate with joy as to what just happened, knowing what was getting ready to happen just 30 seconds later. And, and I, I, the point I'm trying to make is that living in this world as a believer it can be tempting to think we're missing out, especially as we lift our eyes up and we observe the world and see all of this celebration that quite honestly is in vain. Maybe even we're tempted to think that God is holding out on us. First John says the world and its ways, it's passing away. Guys, we know how this ends. We know how it ends, so don't conform yourself to the world, to the patterns of this world. Don't think for a moment that you can tippy-toe in worldliness and go unscathed. 1 Peter 5.7 says, be sober-minded, be watchful, be careful, be observant, be mindful. He goes on to say, your, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Notice Peter did not say the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to scratch or to bite but to devour. The enemy in this world doesn't just want a part of you. It, it wants all of you. Remember that God's mercy has rescued you from that. Don't go back to it. But let us, let us also remember in this discussion, it's not just about resisting something, but it's about becoming something together different. And that's where we see that a living sacrifice not only resists the patterns of this world, but a living sacrifice will be transformed. That word transform, it conveys change. Um, if you take that word back to its roots, we find the term for which we get the English word metamorphosis, which if you have any memory whatsoever, uh, back to elementary science, um, it's the word that describes the process that, that a caterpillar goes through to become a butterfly. Um, just like that monarch butterfly that a lot of us are very intrigued with and pay attention to and watch, God's intention for those who have experienced his grace, who have experienced his mercy through his son, his intention is for you to be changed, for you to be transformed. And, and let's remember, this is both instantaneous, but it is also a lifelong process. You see, before our conversion, we suppressed the loving authority of God. We suppressed our accountability to him. We overlooked our sin, or at worst, we saw nothing wrong with it. But when the Spirit intervened in your life, all of us have a story. If Christ has, has done this, we all have a story. And when he intervened, all of that changed. We were undone by our rebellion, and we repented. We turned back to him. We, we ran to the cross for rescue. And at that point, transformation is well underway, but it never stops. 
And so how does this process of transformation continue in us? Paul said in verse 2, it says, by the renewing of your, mo- renewing of your mind. Uh, he, he used a similar word in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. He says, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. The outward transformation is affected by an inner change in the mind. And the Holy Spirit's means of transforming you and transforming me is God's word. You remember what David said in the Psalms, 119, verse 11. He says, I have stored up or I have treasured your word in my heart that I might not sin. We are prone to sin when we separate ourselves from God's word. Satan's tool, Satan's instrument in getting you to conform to the world are lies. He is a deceiver. But God's tool and instrument to get you to transform is his word. And so before we get inspired and arrogantly pursue life transformation in our own strength, or on the other hand, fall victim to despair because transformation just seems like such a distant reality. Let's remember this truth, that God is not in heaven watching like a spectator, hoping his children have enough willpower to attain the transformed life. He knows us. He says in Psalm 103, verse 14, he knows our frame. He remembers we are but dust And then Owen looked at this passage a few weeks back in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I got some good news for us this morning. God has rigged the system in our favor. He knows on our own we can't work out our salvation, accomplish transformation on our own. He knows that. Our working is only possible by his work in us. And as we work, it's not a passive thing. We still get to work. But as we work, he enables us to desire and to work for what pleases him. This is amazing news. That as we work, he is at work in us so that we will desire to do his work more and desire to work for him in a way that pleases him. This is amazing news. And this this is most readily understood as the Holy Spirit in us, which I hope you'll you'll stick around and you'll be paying attention in the coming year. Owen's going to be preaching about the the fruits of the Spirit that will continue this conversation. And I'm I'm looking forward to that. But as as we remember this, as we remember how God is working in us, This means that as we remember the mercies of God and long to express our worship to him by being a living sacrifice, guys, there is no room for pride. There's no room for pride because it's not our abilities that are on display. It is God who is working in us. And yet at the same time, pay attention, Jaron, there is no room for despair. Because our inabilities don't limit God's work in us. Guys, there's only room for a humble expectation. Because God is committed to your transformation.
He is committed to that. This is exciting. This is good news. So we can walk by faith. We can get busy. We can work because as we work, we're assured that it's him who's working in us. He's rigged it in our favor. Let's do this. This is good news this morning. And then finally, we come at the end of verse 2, knowing that the result of a renewed mind and transformed life brings discernment. He says that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. A few weeks back, Owen reminded us that knowing God's will is not so much about having our questions answered about various life circumstances, i.e. who to date, who to marry, whether to take this job. God's will has more to do with us trusting him, has more to do with living in, in holiness. And so as we talk about this with our, our students, we, we talk a lot about discerning between objective truths and subjective truths. Okay, so an objective truth is always true, but a subjective truth is something that appears to be true to you, but isn't necessarily the truth. For example, my name is Jaron. That is an objective truth. You may call me something different, good or bad, but nevertheless, Jaron is my name. That is an objective truth. Sweet tea is the worst possible thing you could ever drink. That is a subjective truth. Any of you sweet tea drinkers in the room? Bless your hearts. That stuff. You probably like licorice, watermelon, and pumpkin spice too. Those things are disgusting. But let's get on to more serious things. So here's, here's another, another truth. My life is meaningless. It's worthless. Or my sin is too great to be forgiven. Those are subjective truths. But I wonder how many of us in this room have ever thought that or wrestled with whether that is true for us. On the other hand, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. With the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. These are objective truths. Every one of us, we wrestle with the tension between what feels true and what really is true. Discernment. This is what we need, and it comes by way of transformation. And when we are transformed and can discern his will, it enables us to live the life that God desires for us. It says in Psalm 119, verses 105, and then also in verse 130, it says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And in verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. The truth this morning is God wants you to know the truth because it matters. Why does he want you to know the truth? Because when you know the truth, when you can discern the truth, it impacts how you see God. God wants you to see him as he really is. When you know the truth, it impacts how you view yourself. God wants you to see how he sees you, not what you see of yourself. That's what God wants. God wants you to know that truth. When we know the truth, it impacts how we view others. God wants you to see how much he loves this world and and what he gave in order to rescue this world to himself. He wants you to know that because it will change your life. 
So knowing who God is and how that relates to our lives, as well as knowing God's heart for the world, our neighbors, the nations, it brings us closer to knowing his heart. It brings us closer to knowing his good, acceptable, and perfect will. Discerning God's will, again, isn't just about making decisions. It's about knowing the truth about God, knowing the truth about myself, and knowing the truth about the mission he has called all of us to join. As we think about this passage, and as we think about leaving this morning and and what it means for us to respond to the truth, I want us to think of it in terms of, of, of uh, language that we use a lot around here, up, in, and out. And so how do, we, how do we respond to the word in the up category? Let me share a few things with you this morning. What, just, I encourage you to get into the word of God, to know his character. A lot of times we, we get into the word of God to know what to do and to know what not to do, which is good and healthy and biblical. But but we need to know the character of God. We need to know how that impacts our life. Second, we need to daily remind ourselves of the mercy of God and do this in any way possible. Memorize the truths of Scripture that promote and, and remind us of what God has done for us in our sin. Become your own preacher. If the only time you hear preaching is on Sunday morning from Owen, that is good stuff. I'm glad you're here for that. But you need to be preaching to yourself every single day, every single moment, the word of God and what he has declared to be true through his son and what he has done for you. You need to preach to yourself every single day. You need to pray the good news. You need to sing the good news. You need to gather with the church regularly. We need these things. These are the means of grace that God has given us so that we live in the objective truth that God has given his son for us. Thirdly, pray for a growing discernment to know and to live God's will. Find freedom this morning to come before the Lord to acknowledge your proneness to wonder. Find freedom in that. Acknowledge your proneness to live by what you feel instead of what is real and that he will see that, that humility, and he wants to help us. Come to him. Find freedom in that. As we think about responding to God's word in the end category, simply do what is rational. In other words, live in light of God's mercy. Let every action and situation come through the filter of what God has done for you through Jesus. Secondly, think daily for his commitment to transform you as a means for you. I don't know what side of the coin you often go to. You're prone to pride or you're prone to despair, whichever it is, but, but go to God daily as a means to find hope and thanking God for his commitment to work in you, that it is not solely up to you. Yes, we must work, but it is him that is at work within us. And then thirdly, given your proneness to indifference, to apathy, or maybe even religion, Would you, as caring for your own soul, would you humbly give others the permission to regularly check in on you, to appeal to you, to live in light of God's mercy? And my question for you this morning is, who is that person? Who are those people who can speak into your life and appeal to you to remember the mercy of God? You need encouragement. 
Owen talked about this last week, that encouragement is, it's that arm around the shoulder or it's that hand in the back. We need both. Who are those people in your life? Embrace them. And as we wrap up, as we think about how to respond to the word and to, to God this morning and out, um, be intentional to make the gentle appeals to those around you to remember the mercy of God and to live in it. I know, I know this must feel risky. I know it, it, it might feel invasive. It, it might even feel potentially harmful to the relationship. But your friends, your family, your church, I, we need people in our lives to appeal to us to look not to ourselves, to not look to this world, but to look to God and his word. Embrace that gift that God has given to his church. And then secondly, live a sacrificial life of worship that differentiates your life from the world so that you will glorify your Father who is in heaven, as it says in Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. Don't be known by only what you're against, but even more so what you are for. And, and remember that as you live this, living, this life of being a living sacrifice, the goal is not for people to see you, as it says in Matthew 5. The, the goal is for people to see God in you. That is the hope, and that is the desire. And in addition, I would encourage you to spend some time reading the, the rest of the letter that Paul has written to the Romans. He spends a great deal of effort laying out practical responses uh, to the text we've looked at today, but again, do so only in response to God's mercy, that he is committed to transform you and help you live these things. If you would hear anything today, may it be that you are a great sinner rescued by a great Savior who has gone to great lengths to rescue you from what will destroy you, you. And now we can be known not as a sinner, but we can be known as a child of God. We can be known as a friend to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who is committed to transform you little by little by little until you stand face to face with him. Let's pray together. After I pray, I want to encourage you. If you need encouragement, you need help, you need hope, uh, pastors will be down here at the front. Or if you want to text Emmaus OKC to 77 411, you can do that as well. But let's pray. And I encourage you as I pray that you would just ask the Lord and thank him for his work in you to transform you and ask him for help to be a living sacrifice, to remember his mercy in your life. God, we come to you this morning and we are so thankful, God, that we don't have to look to ourselves for help and for hope. How futile that would be. God, forgive us how we wrestle with pride, how we wrestle with despair when we take our eyes off the cross. Lord, I pray that this morning that we would leave this place not with a laundry list of things to do, but with one thing to set our hope and our hearts and our minds on, and that is the mercy of God. And that as we fill our hearts in our minds with the truth of what you have done for us, you will begin working in us as we respond to your mercy. And so, God, I pray that you would do that in us, do that in us as a church, that you might reach those in our families, reach those in our neighborhoods, 
and reach those in the nations who need to hear of your mercy to them as well. God, we thank you for the truth of your word this morning, and it's your name we pray. Amen. 